what if the church has hurt me? This is a really big question. A lot of people have been hurt by the church in the past. And so I guess I should say at the top of this episode, hey, maybe some trigger warnings in here. Um, If you feel like you have been targeted or ostracized or hurt in some way by the church, um, just proceed cautiously uh, as we continue to talk about this. But hey, welcome to the Life Plus God podcast. I am here with Reverend Rachel Bachman. She is the senior pastor of Oakland United Methodist Church, uh, also happens to be the church I'm a member of. I know I tell y'all all the time that I actually attend a different church that I work at, uh, and that's a decision I had to make for myself. But uh, here she is, Pastor Rachel. So Rachel, I'm so glad you're here with me this morning. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah. So this is a really big question. Um, And a lot of people that we're reaching with this podcast are people who are wrestling with their spirituality and and potentially um, deconstructing. Uh, what they've always understood and what they've believed or what they've been told by the church that they're questioning. And so we are, you know, very much trying to reach spiritually curious people. And so there might be people listening who are like, okay, what do I do when I've been hurt by the church? Because maybe I'm not ready to give up on God. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to give up on spirituality, but I can't bring myself to step inside that building. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so... Where I'd like to start, I I feel like within the past five to 10 years, we've been introduced to this concept of religious trauma syndrome, which is actually like a recognized um, syndrome. So I just wanted to, to hear from you, what is your understanding of religious trauma and how have you seen it at work? Well, you know, that's an interesting question to ask a person who works inside of a religious institution, because um, I think we stand probably to be the least aware and the least informed about religious trauma, which is probably sad and and a big part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like I am probably a little more aware of it simply because... um, my congregation really reaches a demographic of people who uh, who have been in in a variety of ways um, affected by religious trauma. and And that could be anywhere from just kind of um, their experiencing church in their upbringing or experience as adults um, with the reaction of, religious leaders or even the general public. I mean, honestly, religious trauma is not something that only comes through the direction of a religious leader. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, um, a point that is, you know, might be surprising to some, but it really can come culturally for us because we live in such, um, such a highly charged, um, religious culture. And by that, I mean, I, I definitely was raised in the purity culture of what it is to be in the American evangelical mm. South. Oh, yeah. I was at the tail end yeah. of the purity <laughs> culture where we were doing like promise ring classes right. with our dads and it was really <laughs> creepy. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it's maybe easy for us to kind of laugh that off and make light of that, but it's really not light. Um, I mean, the effects of purity culture on, um, on generations, I think will have 
a lasting um, trauma for generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I actually identifying religious trauma, I feel like um, when I when I've talked with my therapist about trauma, uh, we kind of talk about trauma with a capital T and trauma with a lowercase t, Mm -hmm. right? The trauma with a capital T is a little bit easier to identify. Like when you've been uh, outwardly, like physically, emotionally abused by the church, Mm -hmm. you're, you know, uh, there's hate speech directed at you from this church, things like that. Like that's very easy to recognize, but kind of like you were saying with the purity culture, that was something that kind of went under the radar and we're not really uncovering how harmful that was until now all of us who grew up in the late eighties, early nineties are like, wait a second, like, my entire view of my value and worth and my sexuality as a woman uh, was wrapped up in whether or not I choose to have sex before right. I'm married. Right. And uh, yeah, it's extremely damaging. And so when I looked up the actual definition of religious trauma syndrome, it says it occurs with an individual struggles to leave a religion or set of beliefs that has led to their indoctrination. Uh, it often involves the trauma of breaking away from a controlling environment, lifestyle or religious figure. So that feels more to me like almost breaking out of a cult Mm-hmm. Sounds like mm-hmm. that definition. But I feel like what we're talking about is so much bigger than that because it's our societal structure of like, we're all indoctrinated yeah. in some way of how <clears throat> the nation we live in has constructed mm-hmm. Christianity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that definition is almost too simplified in the way that it talks about, I, I've, I've picked up on that definition before and it really identifies based on the breaking away. Mm-hmm. So it almost assumes breaking away is necessary in order to identify the trauma in the first place. And I don't think that that, that it's as simple as that. I think it's a far more complex uh, reality that <clears throat> people experience trauma within the institution and stay in the institution and maybe move around in the midst of it or or try to find their space or try to find a place where they might be more welcomed or affirmed mm-hmm. or possibly try to change it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting too quick to my <laughs> to my part. Uh, no, I think you're you're completely right. I mean, I think there's a, just so many different variables of when you recognize the trauma. Mm-hmm. And then what you choose to do with it or about it, uh, you know, I like you mentioned, like some some of the ways that trauma can be that total capital T trauma. Like, I mean, there are ways that we have seen um, news stories and been really aware of religious trauma as it pertains to like sexual abuse or child abuse or things like that that are really blatant and overt and and you know. Um, traumatic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that it affects really um, far more than the person who has been traumatized, but instead it kind of has a ripple effect on the whole system around it and even what it means for, you know, someone completely separated from that to even identify in that form of religion or, um, you know, something like that. So that's a, that's a, 
that's one end of, I think, a large spectrum of what religious trauma really ends up looking like when playing out as for individuals, because it can also really be boiled down to something as maybe, I'm not going to say as uh, small, but as common, because it's not small, Mm. um, but as common as being told told that you're um, sinful or that you're going to hell for some reason or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's, that creates trauma. That uh, it, it, it is so um, packed with so many variables that need to be unpacked in order to understand exactly what is happening and, and why it is that we have created a culture of religious leaders who think they have that authority. Mm. Um, it is a whole nother part of, part of the dynamic, I think. Saying that something like that is so commonplace, right? Even the way that we're talking about sin and we're, I don't know, it, it does feel the exact opposite of what Jesus taught us of like, we're pointing fingers and saying, you sinner, you Mm -hmm. need to repent. Well, how about we just kind of focus on ourselves and like, okay, where can I make some adjustments in my life? And maybe if we all Mm -hmm. did that, you who are without sin, throw the first stone, we would be a little better (laughs) off. So we're kind of broadening the definition of religious trauma. How can we identify if we've been a victim of religious trauma? Is that like, are there some questions that we need to be asking ourselves or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I think that if you if you have a tendency to be triggered by something in church, that's a good indicator that you might have some religious trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say, and this is why I indicated my my difficulty with that definition, is that if you identify that um, mm, singing that hymn triggers me in a particular way, um, I think for me, that's opportunity to talk about it and figure out what about that is triggering and why? And what can we do about it to shape a better future for mm-hmm. people who will not be traumatized in the same way? Um, but that's not for everyone. Everyone can't take that stance. But I think that, you know, being mindful of things like that or watching for ways that you experience some kind of anxiety in religious settings, in religious conversations, um, are indicators of trauma. Um, it can honestly be even as simple as not thinking that you quite measure up or that you're enough because you don't have the same experience as other people. Um, we, I mean, we, we get so indoctrinated into a culture of, you know, if you are really religious or if you are really um, connected to God the right way, then your experience somewhere along the way probably has some like out-of-body experience. Maybe not. I mean, but I think that somewhere along the way, like if, if we create such a strong narrative that, that this is the one way to be, Mm. then if you're outside of that way of being, that can be, um, that can be a source of difficulty for you in the church. And even to the level of a traumatic experience, if you feel like that is a situation that um, isolates you or makes you not a part of the mm-hmm. the included indoctrinated core. Well, let me ask because 
you are well known to me and I think to the community <laughs> as a challenging pastor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the most positive way that I can imagine, uh, in that you are really pushing people outside of their comfort zone to think differently. And so when you when you talked about feeling triggered, if you're sitting in the pew on Sunday morning and something that if there's a song or some part of the message or something that triggers you, how can we distinguish between um, anxiety, triggering anxiety and healthy discomfort? Because I would say Jesus's message <laughs> is not comfortable. Like mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. necessarily every time I, I leave the church. And I make this joke um, that, you know, Every time I leave uh, a church service that you've preached at, I feel like I've gotten my ass kicked and I love it. (laughs) Like, I love it. (laughs) I want that challenge. I want to find Mm -hmm. ways that I can do better. Um, But for some people, they're not ready for that. They can't get to that place. And so the discomfort of feeling challenged starts to feel triggering. I wouldn't say that's religious trauma. Mm-hmm, Where, mm-hmm. how do we distinguish between the yeah, two? Yeah, that's a really good point. I am, I am not um, opposed to discomfort. I think that's a necessary part of growth, and so that's a very, <laughs> a very valid, uh, you know, distinction that needs to be made. And I think that uh, for me, um, a clear distinction there is a matter of welcome and inclusion and for me that these are the these are the primary things that make that define my religion that define what it is to be um a beloved child of god a disciple of jesus christ is to follow in a way that says you are beloved you are welcome whoever you are whatever is going on you are welcome here. There is literally nothing that you can bring to the table that is something that God won't look upon and still say, I love you. And I feel like we have created cultures of religious experience, whether it's inside a church building or not, that seek to say the opposite of that. Mm. And that's more what I was pointing to when I said, you know, if you, if you don't fit in the indoctrinated kind of culture, um, then, then you're pushed aside very intentionally. I mean, there, there, are, there are communities that are right around us that, that will say you don't belong here um, if you don't fit this mold. And, and maybe they don't say it exactly in that way, but it is true. And... I feel like uh, we have, I, I've honestly been blessed to be um, the recipient of a lot of people who have experienced that somewhere else. And, um, and I really mean blessed by because, um, because it is overwhelming to me to see the beauty of um, the different ways that God creates different people. And, and to know that, you know, we receive people into membership and baptize people who someone else, even within our own tradition, has told, you're not worthy of these baptismal waters. Um, it, honestly, that, that extends a level of trauma to me mm. as, as their pastor and as um, 
the one extending these waters. I mean, this is this is not something that um, I think should be treated lightly. The fact that we have created a culture that says that some are worthy of this and some are not. And so, you know, if it's a matter of saying we need to be pushed today to recognize who indeed is a beloved child of God, then yes, I'm going to push us. Um, but it's all in that direction. It's all in the direction of what discomfort do you need to deal with so that mm-hmm. others can know their belovedness? What, what places are we standing in the way of God's love and grace reaching someone yeah. because we believe it should just be in this way. So I feel like a really key indicator is whatever church community you're a part of is who, whoever is speaking, whoever's singing, whoever is, you know, bringing you into discipleship, are they expanding God's love or narrowing God's love? Absolutely. And if you get the sense that the message they're bringing is attempting to narrow God's love, then that's something that perhaps should be triggering and a red flag for you to get out of there. <laughs> well, that's what I, that's what I believe. Uh, I'm allowed to say things that you're not allowed to say with the well, clergy collar on. Yeah. Know, I but. mean, I, I don't mind saying what yeah. is absolutely true for me. And that is that God's love is expansive. I mean, there is no question in my mind or my heart that God's love is so big and so abundant. I mean, there's there's a different kind of economy to God's love. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. And it's not something we can comprehend because we are so, um, so trapped into our understanding of our economy mm-hmm. um, that it that it's really mind boggling to imagine that God's love can keep flowing and can keep being enough for everyone. It's not something that we have to, um, you know, parse out and make sure that only the right people get it. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's that. And I, I can only imagine that's why we get in this mental space of trying to scarcity. say it's only yeah. for us and not for you. I mean, why? We live in a culture of scarcity. Mm-hmm. We live in, a, we are, I don't know if that was a rhetorical question, but I'm going to answer it. <laughs> Capitalist Christianity of yep. like, we live in the mentality of if you're receiving something, then I'm not. Mm-hmm. If you're getting something, if you're, if equity is happening, if equality is happening, if these things are happening, it's threatening me. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that is the, I, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people um, and have kind of landed on the mentality of it does not matter what culture that you live in. Uh, culture always trumps religion. Like, mm-hmm. Religion infiltrates it. Yes. Religion (laughs) conforms to culture. Culture does not conform to religion. Even if we try to force it to, um, it it doesn't work. And so we are all blinded by the culture that we live in. And we have to actively like push away what we're being told to truly engage in spirituality. But yeah, I think it's also kind of a little bit of a flip of that too, in that, I think the real danger there, at least in what I experience locally in our culture, is definitely 
a way that we are we are made to believe that what is culture is actually religion. Right. Yeah. So let me let me tell you how you have to understand sexuality this way so that mm-hmm. you are in keeping with the religious boundaries mm-hmm. that we've decided as a culture actually. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're all products of a thing that as you noted has flown under the radar in a way that I think has been really um, has affected us and will affect us for generations it if we really don't start talking is, about it. Yeah, it really is. Like, it was almost like snapping out of the twilight zone for me when I hit the age of 25 and I was like, oh my gosh, like everything mm-hmm. that I've understood about sexuality is wrong. Like yeah. everything that I've been taught doesn't make any sense. Like it, right. it, and the, it doesn't hold up. And I consider myself such a strong, independent thinker that to realize that I had been so subtly indoctrinated in that way my mm-hmm. entire life and not by my family. Like mm-hmm. I've had this conversation mm-hmm. with my mom and she's like, I never once told you to wait until you were married. Like we, we didn't really emphasize that. And like, we were very understanding mm-hmm. if you decided to start having sex, like we knew that was a possibility. We did not have those conversations, at least not yeah. that I remember. Yeah. So maybe we did, but they weren't often Unspoken. enough. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was the subtlety of, you know, Sunday school teachers at church and uh, classes in youth group and things yeah. like that would just seep in and kind of take over. And to the point that I thought my parents had taught me all these things. And then I'm looking back on it and I'm like, oh no, it wasn't them. I can't remember a specific individual who instilled these values in me. And then I just started questioning everything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then imagine, you know, that, uh, I I don't want to assume what perspective you're speaking from, but I, I, I do feel like then there's this whole other layer of, um, what that same purity culture is doing to someone who identifies differently on the sexual, um, oh, you know, yeah. sexuality um, spectrum. Of, I can't even imagine I, I mean, because I was struggling with all that in a heterosexual, mm-hmm. like I'm super heteronormative. Like it, and my sexuality was accepted by yeah. the culture. They were just like, don't do it yet. You know, yeah. you can yeah. do it and God's going to, God's it's going to be great. We're going to throw a party yeah. and you can do this one thing one way with one person, you know, one person for the rest have of your a baby life. and you're going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I can't even, um, comprehend that feeling of like who I am as a person is not accepted by God is the, yeah. the message yeah. that is sent to you is like, yeah. God didn't create you to be this way. Well, what? Like, I- right. And that's where it gets, you know, a whole different level, I think, of destructive. And that's what I feel like I uh, engage in a lot more in my daily practice of ministry is what it is to be a queer person in this world, in this culture, and how um, how that relates into the institution of religious trauma. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the institutional impact that that has had on so many people. Um, people, honestly, many of whom are so, so called to a life of religion, which is really disorienting and, um, and damaging. Mm. Um, but you know, the beauty that I have found, if there's 
you know, pieces of good news in the midst of this is that um, the impacts of cultural trauma don't always win. Mm-hmm. Um, this religious trauma impacted by the culture, um, you know, may drive people into a place of being isolated or separated from religion or might feel like from God for a period of time. Um, but I have seen so many places and times where that then gets dismantled and they're drawn back into um, the life of the beloved. I mean, they they are drawn back into something that is so core to them that they can't escape it. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the beautiful places where um, where a call to ministry or a call to um, you know live out a life of discipleship is so so pure and so clear because even the depths of religious trauma cannot mm-hmm. um, tear that down ultimately. Mm. Well, so that gets to my next question. If I've been hurt by the church, how can I start to put the pieces back together? Because you you come in contact with a lot of people who they've been hurt, but they're not ready to give up. Like, what advice do you give to people who come to you and say, I feel God's presence, but I've been so hurt. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's the next right thing. I think absolute first is to find community who will love you and support you. Um, Finding a community that gets it really makes a difference, I think. Um, finding a community that can see you for who you are and see the divine in you um, is so important because I, I believe it starts there. I mean, we have we have people who are part of our community who who have a level of religious trauma that they really cannot sit in our pews, mm. but they're still a part of our community because they found a community that can see them and love them where they are. And walk with them on the journey of healing. I was going to say a journey back to that pew, but it might not be. It might never be. But I pray that it is a journey toward healing. Mm -hmm. And that healing may land somewhere else, and that's okay, because ministry can happen anywhere. I mean, God is not um, sequestered to to the box, you know, but... um, but I think that is probably the the first step is just finding community who can walk with you because I think that healing um, doesn't happen in isolation. Um, hopefully happens uh, maybe with therapists and things like that too. Those are part of community, um, but relationship is essential. How did you get to where you are? Like, I feel like just in this conversation, listeners have gotten an understanding of, you know, who you are as a pastor, what you represent, who you're trying to help, like who you're, you're surrounding yourself with as a community. Um, how have you always felt this draw to shepherd the people who have been hurt? It's an interesting question. I don't think there was a switch that flipped or anything like that. I feel like it's maybe instead just, um, a combination of a deeply rooted sense of who who I am and who God is, but also a matter of who's right in front of me. 
And, um, you know, I actually was having this conversation around the dinner table last night about our, our calls to ministry. Our um, daughter asked us this question. And, um, you know, I think people experience their call to ministry really different ways. And, um, and for me, there was never a, you know, this flash of light moment or anything like that. It's something that I feel very much has been um, a part of my identity all my life. And, um, but, but one clear place that I continually look to for an understanding of what love looks like, which translated as what God looks like for me, is, um, is an example that my grandmother set for me. And I, I truly don't, don't believe there's anyone who would be outside of the welcome and embrace of her love. And, um, and I saw that played out in a whole lot of different ways. And it was never that anyone was treated differently, um, but honestly, all treated with an eagerness to be welcomed to the table. And, and I think that's, um, you know, just a, a perfect example of what God calls us to. And for me at, you know, in our, in my current place of ministry, it's a matter of, well, in any place of ministry, it's a matter of opening the door and seeing who is right there. And um, if that person hasn't showered, welcome them to the table. If that person is queer, welcome them to the table. If that person is a rich white guy, welcome them to the table. Just come to the table together and recognize the belovedness in each other because it's there for everyone. And I think that when we don't recognize it is when everything falls apart. Um, I think that's when we cease to be able to embrace or fathom even what is the beloved community um, is when we can't see God in each other, no matter who you are, or what the circumstances are. Yeah. The church is a real place of comfort for me, but sometimes I find myself turning it into a castle of um, just waiting for people to come to me as opposed to going out and meeting new people. And it's something that I constantly struggle with because um, I am a very private person. Like I keep my friends extremely close. My circle is extremely small. Um, and it, it's hard. It's hard to break outside of that. Um, but <laughs> I know, you know, you're talking about when you're talking about going out into the community, I know that in the Oaklawn area, uh, you're probably easily recognizable. You often go out with your collar on. Mm -hmm. um, and especially if you've been working, you know, you work with your collar on. And if you're going to a bar after work or you're going to meet up with people, you're just out with your collar on. Do you find that people engage with you differently um, when they see that? collar and, and can you share some of those yeah. experiences? Absolutely. Um, it's very much an intentional choice to wear a clerical collar for exactly that reason. Um, when you say maybe you're at work and when you go out, you still have your collar on it. It is more likely the case that I'm wearing my collar because I'm going to go out and work at the bar 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I think that um, identifying yourself for the role that you play in the community and then being in the community in that role um, is a way to establish yourself and who you are visibly in a way that I, I, I often say like five, just you seeing this um, five conversations under our belt already. It's like, um, it's like there's, there's a lot of breaking the ice that has already happened. If just visually I show up in my role, Mm. um, because another thing that I have definitely experienced along the way in ministry, this is my 26 year in ministry, um, is that I appear female. (laughs) I am female. (laughs) I appear young. I'm not that young. Um, I appear in ways that society says you're not an authority and you're probably not the pastor of that church. But if instead I dress the part, I can show up and claim the authority of being the pastor of that church without having to explain to you or convince you that I am. And that may all sound kind of backwards and upside down and strange. Oh, no, it, it, it makes sense. <laughs> when people ask me what I do and I say I work at a church, they're first, oh, are you the secretary? Are you like, and it, it's mm-hmm. just all of these gender right. assumptions it that is. we put out around women and their role in the church. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with being administrative assistant, so desperately needed, yes. <laughs> but yeah. uh, to make the assumption. Yeah. And for you not to have to get into that whole right. conversation and them just see you and know. And usually I still do. I mean, you still have these conversations, but they come from a different angle mm-hmm. that way. And, um, and for some, it, it creates an instant space of comfort. And for some, it doesn't. I mean, to be very honest, um, a clerical caller can indicate something that can be triggering by itself um, for some people. And so I know walking into any space that that's work I have to be aware of and mindful of and attentive to. Um, I really try to watch for the reactions of those that I'm encountering so that. Um, I can be a safe space. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really my goal is to be both a safe space and a clear presence of welcome. Um, we just this past weekend hosted um, a, um, a gay bingo at our church and the, the, um, the drag queen who is leading this is uh, – you know, approaching me in the midst of uh, a break and, and much to my surprise, as I approached her, she said, uh, she thought that I was going to throw her out. Hmm. And it just, uh, I mean, it just hit me that, you know, uh, if people's instinct is to think that because I'm a religious figure, that my role is to banish them somehow. Um, that's, that's so, um, so sad to me. I mean, it is so disappointing to me that we live in a culture that has fostered that kind of, um, trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, and so 
my presence and my positioning myself with a collar on is to say, number one, you are safe here and you are loved. And number two, you are always welcome. And you're not just welcome, but when you get here, we're going to affirm who you are and, and be really serious about it. And we really try to do that with all the people that we encounter. So have, have you found, so there's ways that people react to you when you have your collar on sometimes in, in negative ways. Have you found that people are uh, more open to sharing their hurt, their stories about the church with you? Oh, absolutely. Um, in my first couple of weeks at Oaklawn, and by at Oaklawn, I mean on the streets, um, the number of people who stopped me on the street and asked me to pray for them mm. <laughs> was um, quite surprising to me. And, uh, and also wonderful, wonderful. I, I meet people all the time who stop me out of the blue and I, you know, it's easy to forget what you're wearing because I can't see my collar. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I have found myself in Target praying for people. I have found myself on the strip praying for people because they can see you and identify, I desperately have a need and I just saw the person I need. Mm. Um, because they identify that there is something, there is something that you show up representing that, um, that they're hungry for, that they are in need of. And it really kind of makes me wish we all had some kind of indicator that we're showing up in that same way. I wish there were a way that you show up on the street and they realize, oh, she is a child of God and, and she probably loves and affirms who I am and will pray for me. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there was a day that crosses somehow indicated that. I don't know, but they don't now. Well, but also... <laughs> Just you saying like, oh, I wish that someone would, you know, see me on uh, Alyssa on the street and stop it. I'm worst nightmare. Like I, I don't talk to me, please. I don't like praying out loud is anxiety inducing for me. Like my prayer time is quiet and private. Like it is. Um, and honestly, like praying in words. I just, for me, it's more about like, uh, feelings and trying to connect into something spiritually, but not necessarily putting words around it. And so anytime someone asks me to pray, I'm like, like <laughs> and I it may be prayer. It do. may, it may honestly just be somebody needing to say like, here's a thing that happened to me. Yeah. Can you pray for me? And, and it might not be like right now, right here. Can you pray for me? But, but even just someone recognizing that, you know, <clears throat> I'm really struggling with the thing and I can't go in there. Yeah. I mean, we know how <laughs> much of a fortress our church looks like on the outside. And I can only imagine the fear and trepidation to walk into a space like that and cross over a threshold yeah. where I think I might not be welcome. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not sure. So I'm not going to take that risk. But if I meet you on the street, maybe I can just let you know that I'm really struggling with the thing. Yeah. Can you let God know? <laughs> Because we haven't done a good job of letting people know that I don't just have access to God. You do too. But 
if you need to tell somebody, please tell me and let me remind you that God loves you. Well, and, and emphasizing like the difficulty of just walking through the door, I'll, I'll say, you know, I haven't experienced that. Like I don't have that. I've had my issues with the church for sure. And there are things that I've deconstructed, but I've never, I think the longest I've ever stepped away from a church is I did a five years where I was like, no church isn't for me, but I came back Mm -hmm. and I never lost my connection to God during that time. Um, And I think that that's what's so hard for people like me to Mm -hmm. understand is just like the um, complete unwillingness to step inside the building and how much hurt that can create in and of Mm -hmm. itself. Because Mm -hmm. me, you know, being a a privileged woman who has been loved and embraced by the church my entire life, I feel like I can step foot into any church and be just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can step into a church and decide, all right, this one isn't the one for me walk out and it not affect me. It just mm-hmm. be like, that wasn't a right fit. Let me try something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and because for- you know, you have options. Yes. Everyone yes. doesn't know they have options. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people really might not have many options. If you have been rejected, literally rejected by the church and told we cannot baptize you. Um, where do you go next? Yeah. How do you know which is a safe place to go to and how do you get the courage and the mental fortitude to try again? Yeah. I mean, when God has been so misrepresented in that way. Yeah. And it's, it's to be rejected at the core of who you are. um, I can't say that I would risk it. I can't say that I would just dust it off and step into another church and try again. Mm -hmm. Like it is so courageous to do so. I've never had to face that decision um, to try and do that. Uh, And so the people who have done that, who have said, I'm going to try again, like I, God is not done with me and I am not done with God. Um, It's incredible. It's truly incredible. And, uh, Now, the flip side of that is I feel like we get to see some of the most courageous, the most brave and brilliant witnesses of God's love because of the people who are willing to come and try. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There is no lukewarm at at Oklahoma. (laughs) Um, There is not the feeling of I go to church on Sunday because that's what you do. And it is everybody who is there is making a conscious choice to be there. Like it's not part of the routine. Mm -hmm. It is, um, this is where I need to be. And not to say that's not happening in other churches. It absolutely is. But I think that sometimes, um, we make it a part of the mundane. We make it Mm -hmm. a part of the routine as opposed to, um, separating this out as a special time that I am choosing Mm -hmm. to be in community with God and with others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So the church is made up of imperfect, broken people, me being one of them. You probably too. Oh, right right? here. 100%. I sometimes feel like I am just doomed to hurt other people. Um, I make mistakes 
over and over again. I'm too harsh. I'm sure that uh, people who listen to this podcast like, yeah, Alyssa, you need to work on that. Like you, you <laughs> sometimes can be really judgy and I can be and I'm, I'm trying to work on it. But sometimes I just feel so doomed to repeat myself. And I don't want to be the source of hurt for someone else. I don't, no matter where, what direction they're coming from, what their life experience is, I don't want to be that yeah. source of hurt and judgment that someone feels from the church. What can I do to be better, to do better when I myself am broken and imperfect? I mean, first of all, we all are. <laughs> so if you're curious if this question's for you, it is. What can you do, <laughs> listener? <laughs> yeah. Um, walk humbly. I mean, I, I, that cannot be missed. I mean, it's easy in places of privilege to act with confidence and be really clear about what we think we're clear about. But I always feel like it's an indicator for me, like it's my flag, it's my red flag that um, I kind of uh, have trained myself to have, that if I think I have it all figured out, there's your sign. Mm. There is your sign that maybe you need to take a step back. Because God's love is bigger than whatever you think you have figured out bigger still. It is bigger still. And so I think that for me, a constant reminder I need to just hold in front of my every step is what beautiful thing is God doing with that person right in front of me? Whoever it is, whoever it is, uh, literally can be someone who thinks so completely differently than me. And man, if that doesn't stop you in your tracks, um, I don't know what will. Like, what amazing, beautiful thing is God creating new in that person? That difference, like that whatever makes that person stand out as, hmm, maybe not that person. Um, that one, that's the one that we need to look at and say, God is doing a new thing. Mm -hmm. What new thing is God doing in that person? Let me watch for the beauty. Let me watch for the transformation. Let me watch for whatever it is that I can't see yet because I can't begin to fathom how big God's love is. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I think I have it figured out, that's when I don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I have challenged myself as of late to ask the question. I'm a very confident person. I am like a bull in a china shop at times. And you're very similar I to me. I am very so. similar to you in that way. <laughs> so um, I have stopped and started asking myself the question, could I be wrong? Which is very new for me because <laughs> I don't, my first instinct is not I could be wrong. Um, there are people who that is their first instinct and they're like, okay, what are some other options? What? Else? But for me, I'm just like, well, this is the way it is. This is the way we do it. I don't understand why y'all are so slow. Let's just move forward. Let's jump on this, you know. And um, to stop and ask yourself the question, 
could I be wrong? And then also, so that goes with walk humbly, but also be willing to uh, receive some criticism. Mm -hmm. I think that we, uh, we don't respond well when, when someone calls us out and even if it's in a loving, caring way, uh, because we take it as an affront to who we are, um, when maybe they see a behavior in you that's not entirely healthy. And I, and so I think that, yes, walk humbly. Yes. You know, realize I might not be right. Like I might not have all of the answers, but we can't let that, um, stop us and be so afraid of hurting mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. else that we're not yeah. pushing forward. Oh yeah. Don't withdraw. Yeah. So Don't I had be to... apathetic. I mean, so much of our culture is so apathetic. Mm -hmm. Well, I had a conversation with uh, a couple friends over the weekend who were visiting from Portland and they were talking about how the culture is so unique there because there's so much fear around being mm -hmm. politically correct and saying the wrong thing mm -hmm. that there is no depth of conversation. And so they said one of the things they love about coming back and visiting Dallas is like people say the wrong thing all the time <laughs> and then you can have a great conversation about it. But they're like everyone in Portland is so afraid of offending mm -hmm. that they just keep everything in side. And so I think we have to find a healthy balance mm -hmm. between like, I don't want to keep everything inside because I'm so afraid of making a mistake. I don't put myself out there, but I also right. don't need to be that bull in a China shop. That's like, I'm right. You're wrong. You know, right. deal with it, get on board or get out, you know? Yeah. <sighs> so surround yourself by people who are different than you and ask questions, have dialogue. You're not going to get better at knowing how to do it right if you don't put yourself out there and risk to your point. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that we could just, yes, withdraw, be apathetic, not risk being wrong. Um, or not even care that we're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe worse, a lot worse. Um, that, I mean, I feel like there is one clear way to the other side of that. And that is practice. Mm -hmm practice with each other and if your friends all look like you go get more friends <laughs> that's easier said than done <laughs> we're, we're adults here who's just going out and making new friends <laughs> I'm teasing but um okay so this whole episode was about acknowledging the hurts of others um, recognizing that some of us have been hurt by the church and mm -hmm. trying to figure out how can we move into a new direction if we're not quite willing to let go mm -hmm. um, and we want to keep that relationship with God, I think community is a, a really great point. Um, how can I do a better job of acknowledging and recognizing hurt in other people so that I can be a part of the healing process rather than a part of the hurt process. Um, I mean, two things come to mind immediately. One is pay attention to people. Look, listen, be aware of pain that surrounds you. And another is to make it known that you're available. I think that, you know, in your 
places of worship or in your communities that you um, find yourself in, make it make it a make make it known <laughs> that um, you're willing to be a safe space in all the ways you know how and in the ways that you might learn how to be, um, to be able to be a healing place for others. Because oftentimes the majority of that healing just needs to be a sounding board. I mean, it just needs a place to be heard and um, acknowledged and your experience recognized and um, and taken for what it is, it, taken seriously and um, and honored. And we can all do that work. We can all honor each other's experience. Um, but there is a willingness that is necessary. You have to be willing to be present and listen and um, be open. Don't interrupt people. Let them share their experience and let it be theirs, not yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, don't disagree with their story. Don't <laughs> disagree with their story. Don't assume it's yours Yeah, because it's not yours. Mm-hmm. It is uniquely theirs and it's uniquely God's. Because whatever others are experiencing, God is experiencing with them. And I think it hurts the heart of God every time religious trauma happens. And I think that it's the work of all of us to go out and to be a healing presence and to listen and to affirm and to love because loving's what we do. I think a, a phrase that you've said over and over again, um, is take it seriously, like take it all very seriously because, man, so just acknowledging, I think that as a church, um, we have a tendency to be dismissive, not Mm -hmm. intentionally, but we are so consumed with ourselves, so consumed with the busyness. When we're in worship on Sunday morning, we're thinking about where are we going to lunch after this? What do I have to do later today? What do I have to do to get ready for work tomorrow? It's just the natural state of who we are. And what if we could take, what if we used worship to actually take a break from that, to step outside of time and space and uh, just be fully present with the people around us? What would we see? What hurts would we see emerge? What stories would we be able to experience? And man, I I wish that we could all do a better job of that. I don't know if it's uh well, maybe it is, but for me right now, maybe it's not achievable every single week <laughs> mm-hmm, to be able mm-hmm. to do that. I think that it, like you said, it takes a lot of practice, but taking that time seriously and choosing to be fully present can help you become a safe space and a healing space, not mm-hmm. just for others, but for yourself as yeah. well, to give yourself that break, to connect in with the spirit. Um we miss out on that. Even if we're going to church every single week, multiple times a week, we miss out on that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Part of it is a flaw of our structures that we've created. The, um, the format for worship for a lot of us, we don't see each other intentionally. Mm-hmm. And it breaks down there. I mean, I might be so completely broken and it might be really clear if you looked at me. But the way our chairs are all lined up facing the same direction, you might be completely unaware. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, it just kind of makes me think, how can I be more attuned to the people around me? How can I be aware that they're even there? And because it, I mean, it really, I mean, it's so scary to think that someone can come into community like that, um, experience something so deeply painful and leave and never be noticed. Yeah. Makes me want to rearrange all the chairs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Church in the round. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I really appreciate you taking the time to come out, have this conversation. Thank you for all of the good work that you do and you. the inspiration that you bring for us to just get outside of ourselves and see what's happening in the world mm-hmm. around us. Maybe we can take that worshipful mindset outside of the church. Please. That might take a little more <laughs> practice on my part is to have like worshipful mindset in a bar. Uh, but you don't have to have a worshipful mindset. Just have a mind of love. Just take your heart with you. Don't leave it at the door. It's all you need. Words to live by. Thank (laughs) you, Rachel. Thank you so much. The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org. And I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.